Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about leftist politics and Christianity. I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are uh, Christianity and rhetoric and leftist politics and um, watching TV. That's a research interest. Uh, and uh, media archaeology. That's the thing I do, too. Cultural studies. I like it all. It's all good. It's all great. <laughs> Um, I am Dean Detlaff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and I study media theory here and uh, work as a journalist and a barista, and um, I also watch a lot of TV, but not not in a cool Matt Bernico way where I get to write papers about it later. You could. It's possible. I could. I've been, I just got all caught up with The Good Place. Oh, sick. That's... That show is very fun. Yeah, I like that show a lot. So that's good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this week on the show, we're, uh, we're not talking about TV. Um, maybe someday we will. But uh, we are instead talking with Marika Rose, um, a really, really great uh, author who's written a ton of good papers, but we just picked one that we'll tell you about later uh, to chat about. But before we get there, we have some cool Magnificast news and um, some other things to share. So what what's on the agenda there, Matt? Uh, number one on the agenda is Magnificast t-shirts. Get them now while they're hot. They're burning up. <laughs> hot off <laughs> hot off the skillet. Uh, Magnificast t-shirts. They're very cool. You can buy one for yourself or your friend or your pastor. That um, has just all kinds of good stuff going on. Um, the design is made by the one and only true great Christian artist of our time, uh, Benjamin Wildflower. Um Anyways, you can buy them on Etsy. Uh, check out our Twitter or Facebook, and you can find a link. They're $22, which is more than I would have liked to sell anything for, but uh, Etsy takes some money, and shipping costs money. So sorry, guys, but that's how much they cost. Um, also, <laughs> if you order them extremely soon, uh, the first 30 people to get uh, that or- sorry, the first 30 people to order a T-shirt also get uh, a really good Magnificast button. So get on it, get on it, get that shirt, get that button. And uh, look extremely good uh, supporting our podcast. Put that button on your shirt. Oh, dang. Double it up. Uh, so that's cool. That's good news. Thanks to everybody who pre-ordered it. Uh, that's also very cool and encouraging and exciting. And I think it's been a pretty good success so far. So we'll have some other shirts maybe down the line. It's a good, easy way to get um, get the word out and also to give us some fun things to do. So that was really cool. Yeah, number two on the agenda, just moving right along, is unfortunately uh, sort of been under the duress of the inquisitorial uh, Twitter community this week. I don't know if you guys have been uh, keeping up with us on Twitter, but we have just been roasted, owned, and I think excommunicated uh, all on Twitter this week. Um, a lot of a lot of really kind of mean-spirited comments from the uh, trad community. That's okay. Um People, people like haters gonna hate, I suppose. Anyways, uh, some really favorites though. Uh, sort of, we curated a list of our favorite uh, comments so far this week, and uh, we're gonna read them right here for you on air, um, and kind of explain the the implications and repercussions of them. Uh, so I don't want to mention this person's name because I don't actually want anyone to go see this person's Twitter page since there are anti-Semitic and other things on them on it as well. Uh, anyways, uh, one user on Twitter. Um, suggests that we justify your communism's metaphysics of, quote, flux. I don't know what that means. Hint, you simply can't. Please get back to me when you do your homework on the Christian religion. So, like, listen, you guys, we've been over here. We've been Skyping for hours. Dean and I pouring over uh, church documents, doing math, carrying the two. And, listen, the homework is not done yet, so we are not getting back to this user. Um <laughs> just real it, it could be that the the piles of homework are so high that we might never get back it's true user. um though uh sorry i actually did uh respond once uh in which i made fun of that user and they said bro marxist metaphysics literally can't be christian ha 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 dying here so uh it sucks but that user is now dead and dean and i are on the run because we committed twitter murder it is too bad. Uh, seek medical attention quickly if a Magnificast tweet uh, causes you to expire. That's not what we want. So what we want. No, not at all. So uh, we're going to keep working through the homework over the next few weeks, see if we can get to the bottom of the situation. Probably can't. Probably just own for life. But um, 
we'll uh, keep you updated about that uh the ongoing proceedings of whatever that is on twitter yeah uh there was also a host of um the uh regular sort of trad crew um dunking on the magnificast on twitter and that's fine that's how they build their brand i get it uh we do it too it's it's no big deal um however uh i will say that as a result of this coordinated attack this is going to be the last episode of the magnificast we have been thoroughly convinced there's no such thing as a true christian leftism outside of uh whatever um a handful of twitter catholic accounts think uh there could possibly be so that's it um all the tweets they they just did their job um were converted so there are, it's been a wild ride. There are only two forms of Christianity now, and that is traditional Catholicism and the Benedict Option. That's it. So be one or the other. Yeah, you got to pick. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, for real though, we um, we do we do appreciate folks who are actually supportive and cool on Twitter and on the internet. And uh, a lot of this was sparked off by the Christians for Socialism manifesto, which we talked about last week, and we had a, a hand in writing. Um, not an exclusive hand, but uh, a hand anyhow. And if you haven't checked that out, you definitely should. Um, Christians for Socialism is a thing that was around in the 70s and 80s. We've talked about it on this podcast before, but it's also around again now. So chapters are popping up. Uh, if you live in Toronto, you can get in touch with me in particular. Um, we're going to host a meeting in the beginning of February. And uh, yeah, we've been getting all kinds of cool emails about other chapters in other parts of the world. And if you want to make one yourself you can uh, by going to christiansforsocialism.org. All the information is there. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get at it then. All right. Uh, so we're starting out with Marika Rose. We're going to talk about her essay, For Our Sins, Christianity, Complicity, and the Racialized Construction of Innocence, uh, which is available online. We'll tweet it out later, I guess. Uh, and then in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite Slovenian Marxist, Lacanian, Stalinist uh, nerd, Slava Zizek, who Marika has done a lot of research on. Uh, but before we sort of jump into all those questions, we'll uh, we'll start out just saying, what what's up? What have you been up to, uh, Marika? What do you do uh, when you're not writing very good essays? <laughs> so I um, teach at the University of Winchester in the UK. Um, I teach philosophical theology which means I do a bit of philosophy and a bit of theology and some stuff in the middle um, and occasionally things that were left over from my predecessor. So I've been doing some uh, biblical studies last semester, which was a fun adventure. Um, I think I managed to pull it off, uh, even though I'm not really a biblical studies person. Yeah, so teaching, uh, I guess ideally research, I'm just in the first year of my job, so not a lot of that going on at the moment, but occasionally squeeze a bit in. Nice, that sounds pretty good. Um... I can't imagine picking up somebody's biblical studies course without uh, having ever taught that before. So kudos to you. Yeah, that sounds very <laughs> difficult. I just drew on all my um, evangelical training, uh, uh-huh. talked about the word of God. <laughs> it was great. We had a good time. <laughs> is, that a, uh, is that a biblical studies course for, for uh, I guess, just like regular undergrads or what's the context for that? Uh, I mean, basically the person who had this job before me... Um, did the Bible and critical theory. So um, in the UK, you generally have to go through quite a long and complicated bureaucratic process to get a course as approved. So ah. they had this course approved that he designed and it was about gender and sexuality in the Bible. Um, so gender and sexuality is something I know a little bit more about. So um, yeah, I, I picked up the course and taught it for him. Ah, neat. Oh, that sounds cool. In his place. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Matt, what are you being up to these days? Uh, yeah, this is my first week back uh, teaching. Um, my load is a little less crazy than last semester, so just been going through my first days of class. It's been a good good time. Nice. That's good. Yeah. Uh, hopefully yeah. not as uh, brutal as your last semester. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. It'll, it, 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 I might change my answer later. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll Dean, see. what have you, you been doing, man? Uh, I have been busy writing a bunch of stuff uh i've got some papers to present and some articles to hopefully publish and get paid for in the near future um yesterday i had a super cool uh interview conversation with this guy named lee cormie who was a professor here in toronto but he was a part of christians for socials in chicago in the 70s and that was super exciting and cool uh talking to theologians who spend time with the zapatistas is a thing that i don't often get a chance to do so 
I appreciated that opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds neat. Um, cool. So with the uh, the casual, you know, lead up out of the way here, we're gonna uh, have you put your academic hat on, uh, Marika, and uh, you're, you're not a real person anymore. Now you're a brilliant expert um, on all things. Uh, <laughs> all things Christian. So uh, for people who have not read your essay before, um, presumably a lot of people on our listener uh, base here, what's a good elevator pitch for what you're trying to do in that paper? Um, so I think uh, really what I'm doing is fleshing out um, something that Gil Anajar says about that passage from Paul that um, liberal Christians love about in Christ, there's no longer male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. Um, and what... Um, so obviously it's very popular with lots of liberal Christian readings that want to say, look how Christ kind of annihilates these differences between us. So men and women can be equal, slaves can be set free, all this kind of thing. Um, and Anna Jar says that actually, although it looks like what's happening is a flattening of difference, what's actually going on in that um, thing that Paul says is a creation of a new difference, which is a new distinction between Christians and non-Christians, and that that distinction correlates to the difference between innocence, Christians, and guilt, non-Christians. Um, so what I do in the essay is kind of argue that um, that's the distinction that's brought into being, that at the heart of Christianity is this claim that what happens in Jesus is a uh, dealing with sins such that uh, Christians, those who've accepted what Jesus done, did uh, become innocent um, and non-Christians, people who don't accept what Jesus did, remain guilty. Uh, and over the course of um, the history of Christianity and particularly the history of Christianity in the West, um, that difference between Christians and non-Christians gets racialized as a difference between white people, people of colour. Um, but that distinction between innocence and guilt um, continues. So whiteness becomes associated with innocence, blackness becomes associated with guilt. Um, so I'm not a theologian in the least, but I read your article and I was really convicted by, uh, I think, that reading of the universalizing tendency in Christianity. Um, so uh, you, you spent a lot of time talking about complicity and sort of like the, the historical construction of that idea in Christianity. Um, can you just yeah. kind of tell us a little bit about um, how complicity um, and innocence gets constructed sort of historically? Yeah, so I mean, part of my um, argument is that uh, if you look at the central rites for um, Christianity, you have baptism um, and you have the Eucharist, and both of those are about um, dealing with sin. Um, and baptism is particularly interesting because baptism uh, historically is understood to cleanse people of original sin. So the sin that we have by being born into the world, by being connected to all the other people in the world, baptism does away with that. So we are no longer ontologically guilty, we become ontologically innocent. And then you have the Eucharist as a practice of kind of confession and absolution that ensures that we continue to be innocent. And what happens is that you, uh, by defining Christians as the one who've, ones who've been made innocent by baptism into the body of Christ, what you do is that you leave people outside of Christianity um, guilty. They haven't had their sins dealt with, so they are guilty. Um, you see that distinction kind of hardening over time. So uh, particularly by the time you get to kind of medieval Christianity, you're starting to get um, quite strong distinctions between Christians and non-Christians along the lines of innocence and guilt. So um, Humbert of Romans, for example, is one of the um, apologists for the Crusades. Um, and he um, talks about uh, the actions of the Crusaders and he uses the parable of the wheat and the tares. So Jesus says, imagine a field full of wheat and tares. You can't pull out the weeds without destroying the wheat so we just have to leave everything and then on judgment day things will be separated out but he says if you look at the um, lands inhabited predominantly by muslims and um, those are lands they're just full of tares it's just all weeds and so we can destroy um the whole field so you start to get this distinction between christians as innocent and non-christians as guilty um as also a distinction between uh who deserves to live um, and who deserves to die um and then over the process of the development of Christianity and the emergence of race, um, that distinction between Christians and non-Christians becomes racialized. So um, you see in the um, Statutes of the Purity of Blood um, issued in Toledo, which people often kind of point to as the origin of modern racism, uh, the Statutes on the Purity of Blood make a distinction between the blood of old Christians and new Christians. So the blood of uh, people whose ancestors are Christians, who've been descended from Christians uh, for generations back, and new Christians, so people who have um, converted to Christianity from Judaism and Islam, possibly under the threat of expulsion from Spain. Um, and uh, Toledo decides that there's a distinction between the blood of those old Christians and the new Christians. Um, and that's the point at which people would 
some people would argue that you really start to get this idea of race as a kind of ontological difference between two groups of people. Yeah, uh, following all those kind of trains of logic in your essay is really interesting. Um, Especially, I mean, you bring in so many different ways that this mechanic, I guess, shows up in different contexts. Like you talk about secularism and or the secular and the religious as this kind of divide that carries this through in an interesting way. Uh, one thing kind of thinking this through as I was reading it uh, that I thought was interesting was how some people try to separate the domination carried out by Christians by separating it from spiritual beliefs and practices. So, uh, yeah, maybe Christians were colonial people and did crusades and whatever else, you know, enslaved other, other folks. But at the end of the day, like there's something about Christianity that escapes that. Uh, but you really do a good job, I think, of highlighting this way in which Christianity as a uh, cultural logic um, has made the world in, in a certain way, in a certain Christian way. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, how do people separate these two things, Christianity and Christendom, and do you think that they really are separable? Yeah, so I think one other thing that's kind of going on uh, in the essay is some of the ways that I've been influenced by the work of um, Dan Barber, who talks a lot about conversion and the way that Christianity relies on a logic of conversion. So conversion being you are this one thing, you become a new thing and you can kind of leave this bad old self behind you. And I think that a lot of Christianity has historically relied on that kind of move. And I guess one of the things I think about a lot is um, coming from a background of evangelicalism, the kind of context I grew up in was all about um the rejection of these kind of old bad forms of Christianity. So that's not really Christianity. It's gotten caught up in all these um, bad ways of doing things. Um, but if you really convert to Christianity, if you really accept Jesus into your heart, then you can uh, convert out of it. And so it's, it's, again, that kind of foundational move of Christianity sort of conversion is making you innocent. And I think one of the things I've consistently been interested in is how much contemporary Christianity relies on that logic of converting into innocence. Um, and particularly, I guess, kind of interested in the, the way that you get that move replicated in liberal forms of Christianity. So we don't want to uh, be responsible for, and we don't want to acknowledge the ways in which we're shaped by the bad histories of Christianity. So what we do is we say, well, that's not really Christianity. We can kind of convert out of that into this new good form of Christianity where once again, we are innocent and everyone else is guilty. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe, um, I guess it's that tendency you were talking about at the very end. You know, there is this tendency that Christians have to want to escape those feelings of guilt and escape those feelings of being complicit in the construction of a bad world, which makes sense. I mean, I guess the, the positive thing is people decide that they don't like things like slavery and racism and they, they want to do something different. But uh, the irony is that I think, as you show in the article, one way that people get out of uh, or think that they get out of those systems is by kind of replicating the very logical structures that built them in the first place uh, in a way that maybe you don't have to kind of wrestle through the root causes. I don't know if that seems to be right. but Yeah, and I think something about just the way that um, being a Christian has become really uh, entangled with the idea of being a good person so that we become Christians in order to become good people and to be a Christian is to be a good person and in ways that just make it really difficult to um, confront the bad things and recognize our entanglement in those bad things in a way that in a way that actually lets us just keep perpetuating um, the same logics I guess. Uh, so it's kind of funny, I guess a weird coincidence. Um, I read this article, I started reading it last night and I finished it up this morning. And then um, as I was driving to my office to do this podcast on NPR, they were interviewing Franklin Graham, um, who is, mm -hmm. you know, the evangelical figurehead, I suppose, uh, about like his uh, hot takes about uh, the ongoing Trump controversy of his uh, like alleged uh, an aff affair with a, a porn star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I mean... Uh, it's just it seems all too silly to be true, but uh, you know maybe it is. That's fine. It probably is. I don't really care that much. But um, the the funny thing I guess that kind of ties into this conversation is that Franklin Graham was uh, going hard defending defending Donald Trump, saying like you know it, he's not he's not a perfect president. You know none of us <laughs> are perfect, but uh, but he's a Christian and kind of like making this this leap. Yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of innocence because of his sort of religious commitments, and I think that's um, it, it. Sort of speaks to this mechanic and. Uh, makes clear i guess how um these points that you're making in this paper are not at all detached whatsoever from our situation that we're in now yeah 
Yeah, and I think, so you definitely get that in the context of Christianity, but I think part of that argument of the paper is that you also get that in uh, the way that whiteness functions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really um, addicted to um, Slate's Dear Prudence column, uh, so like Agony Ant's advice, and one of the, the phenomena that I've noticed <laughs> cropping up a few times is that people write in and they're like, uh, I've done this really bad thing um, and they're writing in not to kind of say how do I make amends how do I undo the mess that I've created but basically just to be like you know I, I think of myself as a good person and I've done this terrible thing and I don't know how to go on thinking of myself as a good person so like how do I deal with that um, and I think again uh, thinking about some of the work that's been done around the way that white fragility works um, I think one of the reasons that uh, it's difficult to talk about whiteness and to talk about uh, the way that whiteness works to perpetuate racism is that uh, part of the way that being white works is that we think of ourselves as innocent, we think of ourselves as good people. Um, and so it's just really difficult to then be like, oh, actually, what does it mean to be really deeply complicit in and formed by all of these um bad histories? Um, and one of the things I talk about as well in the paper is um, Sarah Ahmed, who talks about how uh, how institutional um, attempts to grapple with racism replicate that um, procedure. So you, as an institution, you write up this report that's all about how institutionally racist you are. Uh, and then everyone says, oh, that's so great. You really acknowledged how um, racist you are as an institution. Uh, and then you don't really need to do anything else because you've confessed it and confession itself puts you back into being a good person. And you don't actually have to do the work, I guess. Yeah, uh, there was a there was a really interesting case of that happening just recently with this place called Georgetown University in the United States, which is a Jesuit school, and they were in the press last year because they um, they publicly apologized for I guess the Jesuits sold slaves and used that income to build the university. So the Jesuits that were there made this public apology, and they uh, like the Jesuits there today made the apology, and they. Uh, invited descendants of those slaves to come and hear that apology or whatever but uh there was just an article recently in the washington post about how the, those very descendants were like uh cool like thanks for saying sorry but this isn't really a material reparation of like the wealth that you gained from selling like my my uh, ancestors so uh, yeah it, it's kind of it's strange and a, a lot of people like patted the jesuits on the back for that afterwards um but it doesn't really uh do anything <laughs> because jesus has done it all right right yeah yeah um well i guess on that note uh towards the end of your article um where you where you do uh quote sarah med um there, there's mm -hmm. a lot of I, I guess the end of the article is uh was so striking to me because it's just like convicting um and i think challenging um uh the, the part that really stuck out to me though is where you quote uh malcolm x about like a, a meeting he had with a like a white woman after a lecture he gave um where you know she's she's asking like you know but like don't you believe there are any good white people and he says I only believe in deeds and she asks what she can do and he just says like nothing, um, that that feeling at the end of your article about complicity and just kind of like the, um, the ways that we're always trying to find ways out of it are really convicting to me. I know that I've definitely been guilty of that. Um, just the the question about like what are we supposed to do is a, a way that. Is, is a roadblock to figuring out like what you're supposed to do even um so the end is is really challenging and critical um but i guess um are there any like answers to these questions that you you think um would be helpful to kind of update your article with or do you just feel like this is what we have to do is kind of sit with the idea of complicity so i think partly what i partly what i think is that we need to um reject cheap grace uh hmm. and we need to think about what it means to actually do the work to understand and to begin to reckon with um, the ways in which we are formed by the history of Christianity, by the history of white supremacy. Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, for me, I'm an academic, so mostly what I do is I read books and I think about them and then I write stuff. So I think for me, where I'm at is... Um, what does it mean for me as a theologian to um, take responsibility for my formation by the Christian, tra Christian tradition to um, take on the uh, things that I learned from other people about what that means, about the, what that has meant historically? And how do I kind of, yeah, start to think about uh, what it means to be a Christian, um, 
what it means to be a theologian, what it means to occupy a discipline where um, all of that stuff has absolutely gone on to for me. I guess I'm also thinking a lot increasingly in terms of what does it mean to be an academic? So I exist in uh, an, an institution uh, which emerges out of the history of universities in the West, which is a history of, uh, you know, this massively uh, developing um, bureaucracy uh, in the West that was necessary in order to manage colonialism, in order to um, enable the slave trade. Um, so the history of the university is part of that history as well. Um, and I think that in the same way that um, Christian theologians like to think that being a Christian is about um, being a good person and making the world better. Um, academics, I think, uh, similarly, we like to think of ourselves as kind of radical people who are going to um, inspire our students to go out and change the world. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm trying to do both as a theologian and an academic is to think about, like, actually, how am I inevitably, inescapably, to some extent, replicating precisely these systems that are the problem? And what does it mean not to get out of them, um, but to try and think about how you can maybe redirect some energy or throw the occasional spanner in the works or make things just work a bit uh yeah make white supremacy run a little bit less smoothly and I think it's partly about yeah something about doing the work something about taking responsibility and something about really grappling with how do I understand the context that I'm in and what I am doing and the things that I'm perpetuating just by carrying on doing my job um doing the kind of work that I'm doing so refusing easy get outs and and just trying to spend a lot of time understanding what's going on I guess and then seeing where there's room not for not for saving people not for saving the world but just for kind of trying to push things in a slightly different direction yeah I think that's um it's helpful to hear you say that and it's also difficult and challenging so thanks <laughs> <laughs> uh it's interesting too I mean that fits with what you say toward the end of the uh the paper when you talk about how the gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as a, a stumbling stone. Uh, and I think that's really interesting as a maybe corrective to the Pauline emphasis that you criticize in the beginning of the paper, right? Where uh, everybody comes, becomes one through Christ and it's this kind of unifying moment. But um, if you, if you look at other parts of the Bible, Jesus feels like sort of anything but a, a unifying moment, I guess, like more like a spanner in the works as you were putting it now. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a theologian, so I don't know. Any, I don't know what to make of like the contrast between whatever Paul's doing and whatever Jesus is doing, but it seems like an important, uh, <laughs> an important point of difference, at least in this context, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that I would want to do is to resist to. It seems to me like the the kind of desire to like be like this is the essence of Christianity is again like part of the problem because you find the essence and then you can discard all the other stuff that's part of the problem. So it's partly about kind of starting to be like, what does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there and you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Um, the thing about the image of Jesus is the, um, the stone of stumbling. And I think this is something I take a bit from um, Kierkegaard and a bit from Althaus Reed is that the, the language that you find in the New Testament is Jesus both as the, the foundation stone on which you build the church and also the stone on which you stumble. So, uh, the ways in which what Christianity currently is, is both built on resources and ideas about Jesus that go back as long as Christianity. Um, that that's, you can't straight, you can't just disentangle Jesus from the way that the church has been formed, but it, there are also resources for kind of disruption and interruption and uh, making things a bit messier and more uncomfortable. In my uh, evangelical sort of background and my uh, ongoing Protestant tradition, there is such uh, an annoying impulse to just like um, to like dumb this whole problem down to just say like, well, Christians should be Christians, or like you know we should um, we should read all of the Bible through you know specific hermeneutics of um, of justice or whatever that that relies mm -hmm. on the idea that there is some true Christianity that's more authentic than all of the others, and I guess. I mean, I understand how that's mobilizing for some individuals who go to church, but I think intellectually it's just uh, difficult to get behind that idea because of what you've just said. That I mean, the Christian tradition is often um, that kind of confused, un, un, uh, detangleable knot of hard stuff to just kind of like hold together. Yeah, yeah, and I think that one of the things that's interesting about Christianity as well is something about the way that it is um, 
becoming sidelined. So Dan Barber again talks about secularism as kind of repeating the move that Christianity makes to get out of uh, Judaism, of conversion. And so secularism kind of repeats the same move, but it sort of discards Christianity and it kind of racializes religion by first by being like saying Christianity isn't religion, it's a relationship or whatever you want to say. But then by saying actually secularism transcends Christianity and gets us out of Christianity. And so I think there's something maybe potentially interesting, maybe potentially productive about um, occupying the position of Christianity in the current configuration of things, because um, partly because in some ways, everything that is bad about the secular is is also visible in Christianity in ways that are just sort of slightly uh, different. So you can maybe see them a bit more clearly. Um, but also something about the way that Christianity is to some extent uh, being sidelined by secularism and being aligned with the things that it previously created in order to re- reject. There's something about that position that's kind of interesting. Um, you can't, uh, there's just a kind of, uh, in a lot of contexts anyway, there's something just not quite proper about being a Christian, like a little bit embarrassing. Mm. Uh, and I think that maybe we can lean into that in some ways that are potentially productive. But we have to yeah. really confront not just the like, oh, isn't it kind of quaint and quirky that you guys believe in God? But, oh, you're part of a group of people who are aligned with the Franklin Grahams of this world. Mm. What do we do with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I go to the I go to a school called the Institute for Christian Studies, and I never... Uh, I never am honest about that in Toronto. When someone asks about where I go to school, I say I go to the University of Toronto every time because I, which I don't, and like I just don't want to be associated with, uh, I guess, what people probably rightly deride as Christian in North America in particular. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It is complicated to kind of sort that out. Um, so uh, I feel like maybe this is a good way also to transition a little bit into talking about Zizek because these kinds of antagonisms and tensions uh, that you're raising here and even the way that Christianity becomes maybe covertly taken up by other um, seemingly emancipatory discourses uh, can be really hard to, to sort out. Um, so yeah, could you talk a little bit about what you are doing in your work on Zizek and uh maybe a little bit too about how Christianity and his communism are both maybe interesting and also kind of problematic. Yeah. So um, I think I kind of, I came to Zizek, um, I guess out of uh, becoming less of an evangelical um, and uh, not wanting to stop being a Christian, but also not wanting to be an evangelical anymore, but also not wanting to end up in a kind of liberal Christianity where like everything goes, like there was something about the, um, the kind of uncompromising attitude of certain kinds of evangelicalism that I somehow didn't want to let go of and I think really what I'm trying to say is I didn't want to end up liberal and um, so how do you how do you stop being an evangelical Christian without becoming a liberal um, and so uh, I was kind of interested in Zizek because so the way I've, offered, I've said it in the past is that uh, it seems to me like there's an analogy between my question, which was um, how do you be a Christian given all the um, historical and ongoing failures of Christianity with one of the questions that I think drives a lot of Zizek's work, which is how do you continue to be a Marxist given the historical and continuing failures of Marxism? Um, And so I guess what I, uh, so I'm I'm just kind of uh, finishing up some final edits to my first book, which is based on my PhD thesis, which will be called um, A Theology of Failure, um, ontology and desire from Dionysus to Zizek. Um, and one of the things I'm kind of interested in is the way that Zizek's materialism can be useful um, for thinking about Christian identity, which, yeah, like you said, absolutely kind of ties back into this stuff I'm thinking about around uh, what it means to confront the all the horrors of the Christian tradition and the ways that they're, you can't disentangle them from the things that are, are good. Um, and so, I mean, really what you find with Zizek is that he says that every identity every um project every social order is always inherently um contradictory um and uh we have two options for dealing with that kind of internal uh antagonism that that is at the heart of every thing uh we can either um relate to it out of desire which is um fantasizing about how it can be whole so uh to say you know uh Obviously, there are bad things about Christianity, but the reason that there are bad things is because um, Christianity sold out to the Roman Empire or because um, 
Paul came and screwed it all up or uh, because we uh, lost the medieval guild system or whatever. So we can kind of blame it on something that went wrong and then we can sort of still continue to believe that there's this perfect perfect form of Christianity. Um, and uh, what Zizek would say is essentially that relies on a fantasy. It means that you're never really confronting the reality of the thing that you're committed to. Um, but the other option you have is to uh, fully confront all the inherent antagonisms and contradictions and failures um, of a thing and say, even though it's uh, a total nightmare, I'm going to commit myself to this project and uh, this struggle. So uh, I guess Zizek's kind of uh, Marxist reading of society would be society is constituted by class struggle. Um, so you can kind of have a fantasy about why your society isn't complete and you can blame a particular group of people. Um, but actually the thing to do is just to really kind of lean into the class struggle and uh, have a fight about what society is going to be like and how it's going to be organised. Um, and I guess uh, one of the things I find useful about Zizek is the possibility of then thinking in that way about Christianity. Uh, Christianity is a mess. Um, I can't get out of all the bad things about it, but I'm up for a fight about uh, what Christianity continues to mean in the future. Um, I mean, the problem with Zizek is that he is still really caught up in this logic of um, conversion. So what you find in Zizek, uh, I mean, he's been kind of popular with theologians because he has been talking a lot about Christian theology um, and suggesting that we find in Christian theology the resources for universal emancipation. And I think that that stuff is just the worst part of his work, um, is absolutely <laughs> white supremacy, um, enormously relies on this kind of, uh, I can't remember who it is, someone talks about it as the imperial colonial model of religion, right? So you start with like paganism and then paganism develops into Judaism and then Judaism develops into Christianity. And then eventually we emancipate ourselves from Christianity and we could become these kind of truly universal subjects um, and Zizek massively replicates that model um, for a bunch of reasons but uh, I think that that yeah I mean and I think that's one of the reasons actually why he's popular with a lot of kind of uh, progressive Christians because he again gives you a way of thinking about well you know um obviously actually existing Christianity is bad but if we just do Zizekian Christianity and we stop believing in God or whatever it is you need to do to be a proper Zizekian Christian then you can just like get rid of all the bad stuff about actually existing Christianity and don't have to confront it yeah uh <laughs> Zizek was uh I guess I resonate with how you were saying earlier that Zizek is sort of a way to escape evangelicalism without becoming a liberal Christian uh I felt the same way when I started reading Zizek a long time ago as an undergraduate and uh yeah I guess <laughs> the older I've gotten uh the more I've also been slowly kind of figuring out those those weird Eurocentric bits and white supremacist bits that are alive in in Zizek uh <laughs> it feels it feels like less and less surprising that he, uh, someone like John Melbank would be really into someone like Zizek. Uh, 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 yeah. So could you also maybe, I mean, you said a little bit about it already, but could you help connect some of those dots too between maybe the universalizing nature of something like Zizek's communism and the universalizing nature of Christianity that sort of, they both present themselves as these emancipatory things, but they uh, reinscribe really bad uh, uh, logics of domination. Yeah, and I mean, part of the problem for Zizek is that he, I mean, so he divides everything into basically three categories. So uh, the world divides into uh, the material world, um, the individual subject, and then society. Um, and he doesn't really have any way. So the thing that's going on at the level of the material world, like the antagonism that drives the process of historical change is quantum uncertainty. Um, at the level of the individual subject, um, it's all about desire. So gender and sexuality is the kind of terrain in which we try and figure out what it means to be a subject. Um, and then at the level of society, um, class struggle is the way in which we try and figure out what it means to be a society and try and reckon with our internal antagonisms. Um, and although he doesn't kind of absolutely say these are the only three levels of reality, that is the kind of, that's essentially the, the way of dividing the world up that drives a lot of what he's saying. So everything is either social, in which case it's about class, or individual, in which case it's about gender and sexuality, or material, in which case it's about quantum uncertainty or whatever. Um, and so what you find in Zizek is that he's just not very good at thinking about the way that different um different identities, different groups, different societies overlap with one another. So he can't really think about, uh, when he talks about gender, it's always, um, in, in sexuality, it's always in terms of how they 
shape us as individual subjects. It's never as how they also function to divide wealth and labour. So you can't think of gender and sexuality as things that also interact with questions of class. Um, he also just doesn't have any space at all for um, thinking about race and um, the history of anti-blackness in that framework. So it just tends to get left out entirely. You find it a little bit. So he'll sometimes will say we displace class struggle onto race sometimes. So either onto the figure of um, the Jew or onto the figure of the image immigrant. But that's always a displacement of class struggle. It's never really uh, he can't really reckon with the possibility that aspects of European society are fundamentally constituted by racism and slavery. Um, and because he kind of thinks about society on this kind of uh, as just one thing, he also tends to think about um, capitalism as being this kind of monolithic global thing that doesn't have any kind of internal um, divisions or distinctions. So, uh, he really thinks that there's only kind of one capitalism and the thing that offers us a way out of that one capitalism is the European legacy, which is this idea of universality. So he can't think, for example, that what is going on in Europe um, is connected to, but also in crucial ways distinct from what's going on in China uh, or what's going on in India. He can't really think, uh, he doesn't have a space for what I think is uh, Trotsky's idea of um, uneven and combined development. The idea that uh, you have different kind of uh, societies that obviously are constantly interacting, but also have some sort of independent development and then interact with one another. So um, because he thinks that capitalism is essentially one uh, because of globalization, he thinks there's only kind of one way out of it. And he looks to the Christian legacy to get out of it. Um, and even that, I think, doesn't work on his own terms, because he also says um, in a number of places that that what you're seeing now is um we are moving away from a situation in which it's European culture and values that determines capitalism. And increasingly, he talks about um, China as being the kind of driving force. But it doesn't occur to him that then maybe whatever is going on in China uh, is the thing that will have the contradictions that will drive things forward. So his ontology is too simplistic, basically. And that means that he buys into essentially a Eurocentric vision of how world history involves where we continue to be at the center of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Zizek has been picked up in Christian circles in an interesting way, kind of like how Derrida got picked up in a lot of Christian circles. So people take what they want and then they don't use other parts of it. So I'm thinking of popularizers like people like Peter Rollins who try to make Zizek popular in Christian communities, though ironically, usually without any, um, any of the communist stuff. Uh, so I guess I'm curious about how you see that trend going as a, as a Christian person interacting with Zizek. Uh, how do you see him being translated into Christianity now and uh, what is maybe good and potentially bad about that reception? Yeah, so um, I mean, I think I'm mostly quite skeptical of the way that Zizek gets picked up by contemporary Christianity I think partly because I think that the bits where he talks about Christianity uh, so obviously they're the bits that most often get picked up by Christians going to Zizek to find resources but I also think that when he talks about Christianity is where you get the most kind of concentrated uh, white supremacy and Eurocentrism and I think that a lot of the Christian uses of Zizek tend to replicate that so um, I think again what often happens is you get this idea that um so Zizek talked about uh, this kind of Lacanian idea of the big other. So uh, one of the ways that societies sustain themselves is we uh, want to believe that society can be whole and everything can be meaningful. And so we project outwards um, this belief in uh, this external figure who holds everything together, guarantees the meaning of everything. Um, and um, so what we need to do is to uh, give up our belief in the big other and realise that we are absolutely responsible for everything that we do. Um, and I think you see a few different people kind of picking up on that argument and basically being like, we need uh, a kind of altizery Christianity. We need to uh, stop believing in God and realise that there is no God and we're on our own. Um, and I think that the problem with that is maybe twofold. And I think that one of the problems is, again, it's, it's repeating that move of conversion. So uh, we, the radical Christians who no longer believe in God and rely on God, um, are now um, innocent of all the bad things about uh, evangelical Christianity, where people still really believe in God and rely on God. Um, but I think the other problem is that it just slightly misrecognises the importance of Christianity in sustaining the existing order of things. Um, 
it clearly isn't much of a threat to the existing social and political order if people go from being Christians to being atheists. Like, that is 100% fine as far as <laughs> the functioning of capitalism is concerned. Um, and so you might change Christianity. Um, that's great. But I think that if you want to talk about um, the fundamental fantasy that sustains the existing social order in being, um, you'd be looking something much more like capitalism the belief in money um, and the way that that holds everything together um, so it might be kind of disruptive within a particular kind of christian context even though it's problematic because it's repeating that uh move of conversion but fundamentally uh it's not posing any serious threat to the existing order of things which doesn't rely on people being christians so it doesn't really grapple with the increasing irrelevance of christianity i guess um, and in some ways it uh just lets us continue to pretend that Christianity really is relevant uh, by suggesting that if we change our relationship to Christianity, then we'll be radical Christians all of a sudden, um, as though anybody outside of Christianity really cares about that. Mm. Yeah, it's weird, too, because it feels like most places where Christianity has actually been a liberating force, it's been people who, like, unironically believe in God, like in <laughs> in uh, third world societies or in places like Nicaragua or whatever. Um I don't know. Like Ernesto Cardinal in Nicaragua wasn't really a very good death of God theologian, it seems to me. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's tricky because, uh, I mean, belief in God just does such different things in different contexts, right? Um, and mm -hmm. I think really, I mean, what Zizek wants is not, I think what Zizek sees as kind of central to actually changing things is just to be uh, sufficiently committed to a cause or an idea uh, that you will destroy the whole world for it. Uh, but you also have to be committed to that cause or that idea um, in a way that is not uh, pretending that it's more perfect than it is. Uh, so I guess something like uh, with Marxism, like fully confronting all of the ways in which Marxism is totally uh, failed as a project, as an absolute mess, is internally inconsistent and still being like, yes, but this is the fight I'm going to have and I'm willing to sort of overturn the whole world for it. Um, so it's something about that kind of combination of sort of ruthless confrontation with the ugliness of the world we inhabit and also a kind of total commitment to it. So um, maybe this is like a, a wrong headed question you can tell me if it is but is there like and this is also like a huge question too that's stupid stupidly big is there like a future for christianity like i guess how do we how do we sit um how do we sit with sort of the uh injustices of christianity and look toward the future for something good like is there a strategy for that or just like hoping that it happens um i think that this is kind of a question about hope right yeah um, i guess so yeah and i mean i think that um, I mean, I'm going to claim that this is rooted in Zizek, but I'm maybe also thinking of like a bunch of other people uh, who Zizek would not necessarily um, agree with, and maybe particularly some of the people kind of associated with Afro-pessimism. But I mean, the thing about uh, the world as it currently is, is that we can't get out of it. Mm. So we can't imagine a future that uh, escapes the conditions of the world that we currently live in. Um, and so I think that Zizek would say something like, actually, we have to be committed to the absolute destruction of this world, uh, not because we know what will come next, uh, but just out of a kind of refusal of this world as it currently is. Um, and I think that the problem with trying to imagine what might come afterwards or imagine the future is that we're always we're always taking all of the stuff uh from the world that we currently inhabit that is shaping us into our vision of the next world. Um, so I think that hope can often blunt the edge of any kind of radical project, or certainly I'm, I'm wary of hope, I guess, because I think it too easily uh, assumes that we can... Yeah, we can imagine something that is, it's, it's back to this logic of purity, like we can get to this pure thing that isn't shaped by all of this stuff. Like, what would the world look like if we really uh, ended anti-blackness? Who knows? Like, so much of uh, the material and cultural and symbolic structure of our lives is so deeply informed by this stuff that uh, we don't know what it would look like if we destroyed it. We just have to know that we need to destroy it. So a kind of apocalyptic Christianity, I guess. Um, yeah. Dang. <laughs> that is a uh, very cool and interesting i guess yeah. i'm wondering how um how it would 
escape that conversion narrative in a sense like uh uh how do you avoid moving too quickly for example to like uh um well the apocalyptic form of christianity is kind of the new conversion that uh absolves us from these past forms of christianity yeah yeah um yeah and i mean i don't i think probably uh i don't really know um and it's definitely something i'm still trying to think about a lot in the work i've been doing and one of the things i've been um thinking about recently is um Walter Benjamin's critique of violence, um, which is kind of important to Zizek. Um, but one of the things that Benjamin talks about that Zizek just doesn't pick up at all um, is the idea of the general strike. So uh, mm. this idea that what you start with is kind of lots of small refusals of work uh, that build up eventually just to this like absolute refusal. Um, and Benjamin makes a distinction between uh, the proletarian general strike, which is good, um, and another type of general strike, which is bad. I can't remember what he calls that one. But but, but between the, t- the type of strike that says um, we are still going to work in the factory, um, but we would like better wages and we'd maybe like slightly different bosses um, to the proletarian general strike proper, which just says we are not going to return to work until work is completely transformed into something different. Um, but that you kind of can't really... So it can't be kind of uh, articulated as a clear demand for the next thing. It just has to be articulated as a refusal, like we do not want this. Um, and so something like that, I guess, like uh, wanting the end of the world without necessarily having any guarantee that that what comes after will be better or knowing what comes after, what that will be like. Um so yeah, it's something is about that kind of that that gesture of refu- refusal without then also positing the next thing. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about it. Me either. That it feels, <laughs> I feel like it gives me a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> really makes. Yeah, think. I mean, I guess that's the challenge of <laughs> it's the challenge of being like a, a Christian on the left, and it's something we've wrestled through uh, here and there on this podcast. Is like. I don't know, coming to terms with the fact that Christianity is such a destructive and pathological force in the world, uh, but also, I guess, having some kind of attachment to it one way or another and trying to find these impulses in it that seem to uh, uh, oppose those dominating influences and, and highlighting those in creative ways. Uh, but that that moment of sort of refusal and negation, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's just one more sort of internal antagonism within christian identity now uh if you're going to be a christian who wants to oppose christianity you just have to sort of sit with all those uh all those problems in some (laughs) some very confusing way yeah yeah and i think i've been sort of trying to think through a lot just what it means to uh what it means to say i'm a christian without meaning by that i'm a good person Mm. um And I think, yeah, I think a lot about like, I've again, I kind of encountered this gesture amongst a lot of progressive Christians where people say, oh, I don't want to talk about Christianity. I don't want to define it as a Christian because, you know, there's so much that's bad about uh, Christianity and institutions of Christianity. So I'm just a follower of Jesus or uh, yeah. that kind of thing. And so something about um, a refusal to distance ourselves from what actually existing Christianity is. Um, and one of the things... I argue for in my book is a kind of materialist conception of Christianity that um, says that Christianity is the sum total of all the things that Christianity has been and all of the things that have been done in Christianity's name and all the people who have described themselves as Christians. Um, And so something about trying to understand yourself as part of that uh, and obviously wanting to kind of, yeah, have a fight about what that will come to mean and what it will be in the future but not trying to get rid of the bits we don't like uh what does it mean to to say that in as much as i'm a christian i'm a christian along with donald trump or uh franklin graham or jeff sessions like that's part of uh that's part of what's formed me that's part of who i am that's in some way part of uh my identity what do i do with that uh and something about yeah, I mean, this is not this has not worked out, but but something about taking responsibility rather than trying to escape it or convert or uh, be absolved. Uh, sorry, I'm just quiet because I'm trying to think of how to yeah <laughs> how to same. respond to that very cool idea. <laughs> it's just such a it's such a challenging and hard idea, but I think it is one that is essential. Um, I like I like the insistence of just like uh, 
eschewing escapism and saying no to that opportunity or that possibility in Christianity saying, saying no to that. And just like having to deal with what it is. I think that's uh, very good. I mean, Christianity um, in sort of the evangelical, evangelical context that I'm in often talks about um, tradition as like an inheritance mm-hmm. and something that you really want, but it does often weed out that inheritance to neglect these harder situations. So um, maybe taking the idea of the inheritance more seriously in the sense that like, it's all, we, we get it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about like um, the ways in which kind of Christian uh, identity is narrated precisely as a genealogy, right? And all of the kind of uh, respectability mm. politics that go along with that. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about in terms of, you know, being a theologian or what it means to be a theologian is like, how do I start to uh, tell the story of the history of Christianity in a way that um, acknowledges all the ways in which this idea of genealogy, which proceeds right by like marriage and by like women not having sex with anyone except the person they're married to, which also means uh, theologians not drawing on any of the resources from the cultures around us uh, in order to constitute ourselves. So uh, what does it mean to recognise the ways in which the Christian tradition is formed by uh, Thomas Aquinas' encounter with Aristotle and uh, Islamic and Jewish thought? What does it mean to recognise all the ways in which actually Christian theology changes as it encounters uh, other people and other ideas, but also the ways in which it uh, absorbs all those things into itself and then covers over the evidence and uh, retroactively baptises people. Um, So, you know, Plato is really a Christian and that's why we can use Plato in Christian (laughs) theology. Um, and yeah, and I think that the the kind of, yeah, the way we talk about Christian identity is really deeply bound up with uh, this idea of like sexual reproduction and marriage and not marrying out and refusing miscegenation. So what, what happens when we actually start to say, actually, let's think about all the ways in which uh, Christianity was sustained by promiscuity and by infidelity and by uh, writing the black sheep of the family out of history so we don't have to confront it. So, yeah. I think that's one way I would kind of go about that. Like, how do we tell the story of Christianity differently so that we don't perpetuate this idea of this kind of single history where everyone behaved themselves? Well, it's been about an hour. Um, we don't want to take up too much of your time, Marika. So um, maybe that's a good place to end the conversation. What do you think, Dean? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Marika. It was really fun to read your essay and uh, we're excited about the book. Uh, I don't know if you have like a estimated date of publication or where it's going to come out or whatever, but we're happy to um, promote that as it as it does emerge. That's exciting. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm supposed to have it. To, so it'll be with Fordham University Press uh, and it's supposed to be. I'm hoping to get it sent off by the end of February. Uh, it was it keeps getting pushed back. So, but I think <laughs> the end of February is like moderately realistic. So, um, yeah. Cool. When when it comes Great. out, we'll uh, we'll retweet, etc. About it. Thank you, um, and thanks for um, having me on. It's been really fun. I've really enjoyed myself. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming and talking to us. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Thanks a lot to Marika for agreeing to be on this uh, podcast. It was really fun, super great, a lot of challenging stuff that I'm going to keep thinking about for a very long time, I think. Uh, Yeah, it is really cool, I think, especially when people have a a nice critical relationship to both the, uh, the Christian tradition and the left. So if you know other folks doing cool stuff like that, send them our way. That would be fun. Uh, In the meantime, go check out our new shirts and uh, our buttons and check out the Christians for Socialism manifesto and get get on it. Get building that socialism uh, as a Christian or with Christians or as a person who likes Christians or a person who can at least tolerate Christians, (laughs) however you want to you want to do it. Um, Anyway, uh, thanks also to Amari O'Shea for that really great intro music that we use every week. And also uh, here's the illogical spoon play us out. Alright, see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive.
heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no dam between us and our lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.